0: Oh, man, we've made much of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've ended with center my life on your name. What would that look like? Well, in his word, he tells us the Bible are scriptures from the Lord. And so he has something to say to us about the Lord's Supper. And so it's my privilege to preach from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. Paul has been out on his second missionary journey, and while he is there, he has come into this wild and rancorous city called Corinth, and there the Holy Spirit has used him to make many disciples. A church has been built with the help of Priscilla and Aquila, and there these people are growing. The Spirit leads Paul to stay there for 18 months as he pastors these people. They become his beloved brothers and sisters. He then is led to leave But when he leaves, he maintains constant contact. He's always getting visits from friends, receiving letters. Sometimes these letters have confusing situations that need to be dealt with, sometimes questions. Sometimes they come with just troubling sins. The book of Corinthians is a nutty letter. It actually gives pastors and elders great comfort to know that someone like Paul can have a church like that, maybe we're not doing so bad. The issues they dealt with were self-serving leadership and congregational schism, scriptural gullibility and sexual deviancy, gender confusion with effeminate men and unwholesome communication, antinomianism, materialism, stealing. They even had lawsuits going back and forth within the church. People misunderstood singleness. They misunderstood marriage. They didn't know what we were to do with male leadership in the church. There were sacrificial food questions, charismatic chaos. They had a poor testimony in the community. And on all of this, their leaders were apathetic in regards to church discipline. And then there were Lord's Supper abuses. They were doing this all wrong. You might call it Eucharistic evil that was taking place. So, Paul now in his letter, addresses this situation. Let's read it together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is for the worse and not for the better. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Do you humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, on that very night, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give those directions when I come. The Lord's Supper. How can you feast without fear, especially after reading that? I tell you, there's no one here today who's more cognizant of their sin maybe than I am. I'm an expert in that. I've thought about it over the last couple of days. I see it clearly. If Paul can say he's the chief of sinners, I'll tell you that I'm the chiefest of sinners here. But I didn't come to the table today in fear. Not one bit. Why? And it's not because I'm worthy. But it's because I have a greater fear of God maybe than you do today. And if you fear God more, you will come to the table with less fear. Oh, my goodness. How do I unpack that? Here we go. Paul makes his assessment. He knows the debauchery of Corinth. He knows the war going on within his own chest, the battle between divinity and debauchery there. He knows the strength and weaknesses of his brothers and sisters, and he's heard the report. Oh, he's going to give some instructions. He's going to be Pastor Paul in a little bit and encourage. But before he does, he just lays the lumber down. Before I even get started, I need you to know exactly what I think about your evil Eucharistic practices. In regard to your Lord's Supper practice, I have nothing good to say to you. In regard to your practices, I have no words of commendation. You won't be getting, yeah, you're kind of doing this well, but that poorly. You're not going to get any of it. you're doing this well. No commendations. As a matter of fact, when I consider how you are taking part in the Lord's Supper it's not even for your good. It's not for the better. It's for the worse. You'd be better off if you didn't do it. It would be better off for you people if you would have just slept in, eaten a good breakfast, and would be in the second half of the Premier League game this morning than for you to come and participate in this as you're doing. That's what Paul would be saying if he were writing to a modern-day Corinthian church. How are they sinning? He gives his first accusation, but notice his first accusation. It is not doctrinal, but it's relational. So we can have all of this Westminster theology in here, have all our our theology buttoned up and charted out. We can be brilliant when it comes to our theology and come to the table with right theology and still be guilty of evil in our Eucharistic What is that first accusation? They lacked unity. When they came together in one place, he says, there's divisions. When they come together, there's factions. It would be very fair for you to say there were schisms in the church. You know, Paul had talked much about unity in his writings, about the one new man, about tearing down walls of division, about you trying to be the most humble man in the room, and about how to engage in confession or or granting forgiveness and seeking reconciliation. Jesus had talked much about humility, and the greatest prayer maybe Jesus prayed was that John 17 prayer where he said, oh, I just want my church to be one, which, by the way, is the exact opposite of having factions and divisions. This is the heart of Paul. This is the heart of Jesus. But the Corinthians had disregarded all of that And in their schismatic condition, they came to the one loaf, representing the one body, and partook of the Lord's Supper. Let me say that again. Even though there was schism in their hearts and maybe in their relationships, that didn't keep them from coming up to the table and celebrating the family of God. Paul heard of their disunity, and he says, I believe it in part. Now what does that mean? Uh, Maybe he's like, "I've, I've been a counselor for a long time, and whenever I get a report, I only believe it in part. I know that the person giving the report is probably not an unbiased reporter, and I also know that they're probably not looking at it with the clearest of eyes, and you're only hearing half the story. So maybe that's what Paul meant, like, I believe it in part. But he also could be saying this, I agree in part. Why? Because that's what the Lord's Supper does, is it divides. It divides those who are the family of God from those who are not yet the family of God. It divides those who drink from the cup of the Lord versus those who continue to drink from the cup of demons. And so maybe he's like foreshadowing a little bit here, saying, yeah, I know that there's some divisions, but I agree, maybe those are somewhat necessary in part because you've got to determine the genuine worshiper, from the false worshiper, or at least try to do so. Well, back to Paul's flow of thought. The first accusation was you lack unity. That's a sin of omission. There's something that needs to be pursued and fought for that's not being done. What's the second accusation? You lack charity. I think that sin of omission kind of grows into a sin of commission now. In the early church, you would gather on Sunday, not Saturday. Well, truthfully, you'd gather almost every day, it looked like, in those early chapters. And as you gathered on Sunday, that's a work day in the Roman environment, which meant that if you're a servant or a slave or a commoner, you don't get this day off. So they would normally have their worship services early, early in the morning or later in the afternoon or even into the evening. So let's pick the evening time. There they would gather, and where would they gather? Not in buildings like this, but they would gather in homes. And they would gather there to eat a meal, worship their God, and after supper or towards the end of the supper, in that love fest, that agape fest, they would also participate in something like this as part of their larger fellowship meal. So it almost would look like next week's anniversary luncheon, where when we get to the end, we we have our a Lord's Supper presentation even right there as we celebrate and get ready to go our way for the Lord's Day. But it's a work day, and they don't get the day off. And as churches grew, what would happen? They'd have to go to larger homes. And who normally has the larger homes? Those, not those commoners, those slaves and those servants, but the wealthy or more influential people that had come to know Jesus that would open up their home. So we have this palatial estate where people are coming, and who gets there first? Well, the people with the utmost of wealth or flexibility, those who control their own schedule. And they show up, and they're probably dressed really nice, and they show up with great leisure, and they're comfortable in that neighborhood. And as they arrive, they're bringing bountiful food to share and the best vintage of wine they could find, for this is the Lord's Supper. And they're bringing it to share, And so there they are as they're setting the table and looking at their watches and waiting for the time. But who wants to eat really good food that's cold? And so they start eating, not waiting for other people to come. They start drinking, not waiting for other people to come. And before you know it, their bellies are full. Some of their heads are intoxicated. And the people haven't even arrived yet. Finally, here come the laborers. Man, are they exhausted. It's going to be fantastic to be in the presence of God, to sing His praises, and to eat a great meal and to give honor to my Lord and Savior. And as they show up, what do they find? The table is bare. I went in Scott Jacob's office today to get my usual half donut that I eat. I opened the box of Krispy Kreme, And there were two measly regular donuts. None of those cherry-filled or lemon-filled. The table was bare. I was offended. Everyone had eaten all the best donuts. All right, that's a stupid, foolish illustration. Oh, your kids aren't here. Can I say stupid yet? That's a foolish illustration. But this is in reality what was going on in Corinth. They lacked charity. Consider Jesus' feast. Go back to the Lord's supper. At the Lord's supper, they're all prepared for, they're all waited for. When they arrive, they are washed and greeted. There they are all served. There Jesus is the richest one who is the host. They all eat and drink. They're all loved by the Lord and their brothers and sisters. Now that that's the Lord's supper. What is this Paul saying? Some are exalted while others are humiliated. Some eat while others go hungry. Whatever you're doing, I don't know, I don't care what you call it. It's not the Lord's Supper, it's not even a love feast. Where's the love? Paul then goes off. They lack unity, they lack charity. And as he's already told them, you're not getting commendation from me. What? If you were texting, that would be in all caps. He fires these questions. Don't you have houses to eat in? Would you really despise the church of God? Do you humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? He answers his own question. No, I will not. Then he collects himself. He remembers something about speaking words and tenderness. And Okay, it's time for me to instruct you. He puts on his pastoral cloak and gets ready to give them some instruction or admonition. The Lord said to Paul. Now, Paul wasn't there at that first Lord's Supper. Remember, he was plotting on how to kill Jesus. Paul was not present, but he was personally instructed. The Lord had met with Paul by himself and had given him information that he's to give to others. And the text says that this isn't the first time he's done so. He's already delivered this to them, but they seem to have forgotten So he's repeating what Jesus had said. The important thing about this is this is not just Pastor Paul's good ideas. The risen Lord speaks through the apostle of the Lord. This is what's supposed to happen. The Lord on the night of his betrayal, think about that, the very night in which he's going to be betrayed, gives supper to all the men who will betray him. That right there should set up the idea of who's worthy for this supper. There was no one worthy at that first Lord's Supper, and there's never been anyone naturally worthy at any of the Lord's suppers. They all turned their back on Him. They all betrayed Him. Now it's not a matter of, is the supper for those who betray the Lord? The question is, is it for those who betray the Lord and repent? Or for those who betray the Lord and hang themselves? That's the only distinction that can be made. The Lord hosted the supper after supper, it says. And the first thing the Lord does is give thanks. So thanksgiving needs to be part of the ritual. It's not a somber meal where we're so mellow and we're just got that old dirge man of sorrows. What a name. Or even, oh, sacred head now wounded. I mean, those are good songs, and there's a time for this. But Jesus, after the meal, while giving the Lord's supper, gives thanks. He's thankful for something. He's filled with gratitude and he wants his disciples to do this. He preaches the gospel by means of bread and wine. This is my body. This is my blood. This is the new covenant. And the best part, this is for you. That's the gospel. The blood, the body, the promise for you. He preaches the gospel. And he commanded the continuing. You do it. In remembrance of me. At the end of verse 25, the parentheses stop in your English versions. I think the quotation of Jesus has ended. Paul continues. So the Lord says, you keep doing this in remembrance of me. And Paul says, you keep proclaiming this until the Lord comes again. So now we have Jesus and Paul saying, this is really important. This is to be a priority. You keep doing this. The Lord spoke to Paul, but now the Lord starts speaking through Paul. The inspired Paul now has what I think are 11 characteristics that you should follow. Let's just read them quickly. Do it, Paul says. Now you need to be one knowing that you can partake in a worthy or unworthy manner. That's kind of implied in the text. You need to know that one can be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That's something that you need to know. And you need to know that if you're an unbeliever, you could actually be drinking more condemnation on yourself. I don't know what more than hell looks like, but that appears to be what you could be doing if you partake unworthily. But if you're a believer, you could be drinking discipline on yourself. And Paul makes a big distinction here in the Greek words between condemnation and discipline. The believer has no condemnation. But the believer can be disciplined. And so we've already learned from the context that to partake worthily means you need to have unity in your heart and in your practice. You need to have charity in your heart and in your practice. And he even says, so therefore, you need to wait for one another, show some self-control, show some love, and if need be, you eat at home before you arrive because you want to show that much love to your brothers and sisters. But you need to discern the body, then partake, You need to examine oneself before partaking and then judge oneself before partaking. As you walk through that text, that's what you see. Then Paul at the end says this. There's more instructions coming when I arrive. So we have this where Paul is now differentiating that which the Lord has said to him, that which the Lord says through him. But when he arrives, he's going to show some more things that need to be done. He's going to do things decently and in order But he's not going to write that in this letter. I think that gives the church right to set up rules and principles so that we can do things decently in order, even if they're not found in Scripture, as long as they don't go against Scripture. Paul makes it very clear the table can be dangerous but as I tried to explain to you, it's more dangerous not to come to the table than it is to come. But I don't want you to suffer any of those dangers. I want every person here who is a believer in Jesus Christ to come to the table with great optimism, with great hope, with great joy, with great celebration. And so I have six final words that I'll give you and we'll be done. Maybe these six thoughts can help you. First of all, Let us prioritize. The Lord's day is a big deal to Jesus. The Lord's worship is a big deal to Jesus. The Lord's house is big. The Lord's word, the Lord's washing, the Lord's family and the Lord's supper. All these things, whether or not they're important to you, are very important to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord's supper is as big of a deal, I would say, as the Passover. No one was saved by the Passover, but those who were saved celebrated the Passover. It's Jesus who saves someone from the angel of death. But those who are proclaiming their faith in God's Old Testament promise had to sit there and partake of that first Passover and then kept participating. That's exactly how important this meal is. It is a big, big deal to Jesus, It was a big deal to the apostolic church as they broke bread in their homes daily. They devoted themselves to this and it's been a big deal to the Reformed church. The legacy of the Reformed church is when Rome took it away from the people, the Reformed church gave it right back to them and said, we do not withhold the cup from anyone. This is the body. This is the blood. This is not just for priests. This is for you. And then so important was this, that you even had schism between Zwingli and Luther and Calvin because they wanted to get it right. The Lord's Supper and the Lord's Worship is a big deal. Is it a big deal to you, the Lord's Worship and the Lord's Supper? I know work and recreation can get in the way. I know we cannot order our weekend and we can be bone-weary by Sunday morning. I know some don't want to come because of guilt They wrongly sense they have to get right before they come instead of bringing their sin to Jesus at the church. Some are just ignorant and they do not prioritize this for they've not been taught to do so. And some are proud, thinking they need not grace, they need not their brothers and sisters, and if their brothers and sisters need them, who really cares? It's all about me right now. But not the person who understands his sin and his Savior. That person sees worship and the Lord's Supper as the command of God. Important to our Lord, important to the apostolic fathers, important to our denomination, for we take vows and three of them have to do with this. Three of the vows we take in membership are, will you promise to keep growing as a disciple of Christ? Well, this is spiritual grace for you at the table. Will you submit yourself to the elders? and look at your brothers and sisters like you're one loaf or one body. This is the table. Will you support the church in its worship to the best of your ability? That's what we do every Lord's Day. This is a priority. The chief end of man is to worship Him every day, and one of those days is the Lord's Day. At His house, with His people, in His Word, around His table. Let's prioritize it. Secondly, now let's fear. It is here that I show you a greater fear of God is the only way to approach the table without fear. How do I unpack that? Do you remember Cain? Cain rightly said, I'm here to worship you, God. Cain wrongly worshiped God in his heart and maybe with his sacrifice. Cain hated his brother while he worshiped God. In the end, Cain was condemned. His worship was not for the better. It was for the worse. How about Aaron? Moses is up on the mountain. Aaron's down below in the valley. Aaron rightly wanted to be the priest and help God's people worship. He rightly gathered God's people. He then wrongly set up a golden calf. In the end, some were made weak. In the end, some died. God was displeased. Their worship service that day, it would have been better if they would have slept in and watched the Premier League. Nadab and Abihu rightly showed up for work, rightly showed up to worship, had on the right garments, decided they were going to engage in offering this holy incense to God. Wrongly, they worshipped. Rightly, they came to worship. Wrongly, they worshipped. They made their own special cocktail of incense. They offered it to God. God considered it strange fire. They were struck down in their worship. It was not good for them. It would have been better had they not offered incense on that day. David and Uzzah. Rightly, David said, I love my God. I love the ark. It should be right where the king is found. We need a special tent and building for him. Uzzah, let's go get it. Wrongly. David encouraged Uzzah, and Uzzah listened to David. Wrongly, the two of them carted the Lord's ark in the wrong way, in a way that was not allowed by God. When the ark stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand, God smote him dead. David was struck with fear. Uzzah was struck with death. Wasn't a good journey that day. Rightly, they worshipped, but they worshipped wrongly. Israel's elders in the temple went to prayer. Israel's elders kept that that temple of God looking really, really sharp. Israel's elders desired to help people offer animals and financial offerings, but they had unworthy affections, unworthy thoughts, unworthy actions, and they turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves, ultimately. These elders oversaw a worship service that was not for the better, but for the worse and they experienced the earthly violence of Jesus Christ. Were they disciplined on that day or condemned? I don't know how that fits with them, but it would have been better for them not to have worshipped in the manner they did. Oh, we could talk about Judas. We could talk about Ananias and Sapphira. We have already talked about the Corinthians. I'm saying, let's fear. Uh, You can show up and do all of the right things at the right house on the right day using the right words. And your doctrine can even be right, as I've already pointed out. And it can become either an act of condemnation or of discipline to you. Unless you do it right, unless you do it well, unless you're worthy. Fear God. Don't lower his standard. You just don't get to show up. How about you? Did you show up today and have you offered God the worship that he demands and desires? Thirdly, let us discern. You examine yourself. You judge yourself. And you better come to the same decision that the Lord does. That there's no one righteous, no one holy, all falls short. Every one of us have partaken of this table today unworthily. All of us. There is no one here who has loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. You have not run from idols as quickly as you ought and only half-heartedly, for some of us, still crave those things. You need to fear and you need to discern. You need to examine and judge yourself. And here's the key. You do not need to judge yourself and declare not guilty. That's what I've been taught to do most of my life. Get myself righteous enough to come to the table. Make sure that I have confessed and prepared righteously enough to come to the table. Make sure that I've only committed little sins and not the big ones or else I better sit back and not come to the table because I need to come to the table after discerning and judging and saying, now I'm clean. I'm coming to the table because of what I have done to prepare myself for the table. That's not what you're to do. You are to prioritize, fear God, discern, fear Him anymore, and then what? I would say give thanks. Why? Because this table doesn't represent your righteousness in coming to church. This table represents the monergistic, one-way love of God for you. This is what we call the new covenant. This is what we call the gospel This table is for only people who say, I am only unworthy. I am not righteous. I cannot prepare myself adequately. And all I have is Jesus Christ. Then that person can give thanks because he discerns the body of the Lord, the covenant of grace. He remembers what Christ has done and he is now thankful for his past blessings in Christ, his current situation in Christ, his future glory in Christ. You can actually prioritize, fear, discern and go, oh me, and then go, to God be the glory, great things he has done and come to the table. But that's only after proper discernment. Not this religious thing we do where we lower God's standard, pick a couple options, compare ourselves to those and say, we're better than we used to be. Let's come to the table. That's gotta be good enough. Then, what do we do? Number five, we repent, run to the table, and sing. Jesus Christ offers the Lord's Supper to people he knows are betraying him and will betray him. That's exactly what he has done today, and yet he says, Come to the table. There's to be repenting, an internal turning towards the Father, towards Christ from sin from your demons, from your idols, from your slavery. You get to repent like the prodigal son did when he looked towards his father and just came running with all of his sin, saying, I'm getting ready to talk to you about it, Father. He didn't get himself right and then come to the table because you can't get yourself right and then come to the table. You bring your sin and your baggage with you. Jesus then makes promises to you at the table. He rewashes you in a sense at the table. You hear his covenant words to you at the table. You're reminded that his death was sufficient for all of your sins, and then you commune with him here. As one man wrote, as the dove was not really the Holy Spirit, but it was the form of the Holy Spirit coming down, perhaps that's what the bread and wine is. It's not Jesus, but it takes the form of Jesus as you eat and taste and are nourished and are encouraged. And then Jesus' friends ended with a song. That's exactly how we've been ending this whole service today, with a song of thanksgiving for what Christ has done. None who repent need to fear because they fear God the most and know all they can do is repent. Anyone who doesn't fear God that much You need to fear whether you come to the table or not. And finally, therefore, let's run to our brothers and sisters. Yes, it represents our relationship with God, but it also represents our relationship with one another. And the table does call us to remember the one body, which can be interpreted either, and I have reasons here. I didn't get to go into them. It could be, You have to discern what Jesus Christ and His body and blood have done, or it could mean you need to discern the body of Christ and not be one who lacks unity and charity. I can go into that with you later. Ask me, I'll send you my notes. But there is this dimension where we are just not going to eat without considering the family. And so I say maybe it's a good practice for you at the end of every worship service where we have the Lord's Supper to have a special gift to give in the deacon's offering just to show love to brothers and sisters, but also to leave with a to-do list. Take a moment and think. Maybe even right now, just close your eyes. Who in the body of Christ is spiritually poor and needs grace? If Christ brings something to mind, make a mental note and do something about it. Who in the body of Christ is materially poor and could use you sharing some of your blessings? Who in the body of Christ is physically poor and could use a visit? Who in the body of Christ is relationally poor and you could just be their friend? Who in the body is emotionally poor and maybe you could offer forth words of kindness or better yet be like Job's friends were not and just be with them in their misery? Who would Christ have you text or write today? Who would Christ have you open up your home and show hospitality towards? Who would Christ have you grab your tools and go work or serve? Who would Christ have you include in your next function? Who would Christ have you take a risk and lovingly and tenderly call them back to Christ? And then the final two. Who in the body of Christ today needs you to go to them and say, please forgive me? Who in the body of Christ, perhaps even in your family, whether or not they come to you and ask forgiveness, needs you to hear. Needs, needs to hear. As Christ has forgiven me, I forgive you. In one text of Scripture, it's written... Leave your gift at the altar and go take care of business. Do so after doing all of this in remembrance of Christ who loved you.